when I'm preaching. Sometimes I come in here on Mondays and I'll kind of pick things up a little bit. And every now and then I'll find a bulletin and I'll see pen inside of it kind of through the paper. And I'll think, oh, wow, this person must have really learned a lot. And then I open it and there's like a doodle of something that had nothing to do with it. But uh, nice to know that somebody takes notes out there. So. We're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us at Prairie View Christian Church this morning. And one of the things that we all wrestle with that I want to talk about right now, we all wrestle with it at one point or another, at some level or another, in some phase of life or another, is we all wrestle with this need to prove ourselves. So often we feel like we need to prove ourselves to somebody or prove ourselves to something. Maybe in your career, you feel like you have to prove yourself worthy of a promotion. And then if you get the promotion, you have to prove yourself worthy that you deserved the promotion. And then you have to continue proving yourself worthy for the next promotion along the stepping stone line. And as a result, you end up wasting way too much time with work. You neglect your family. You neglect your faith all in the name of proving yourself worthy. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe you feel like you have to prove yourself to them because when you were a kid, you never felt like you were good enough. And so to this day, even if you're an adult, you take pride in a big house or a nice car or good looking or smart kids, hoping that one day eventually you can finally feel like you've made your parents proud, like you really are worthy. Maybe it's with your looks. You see a lot of physically attractive people out there who seem to be successful and happy. And so you feel like you want to be the same way. And so you have to prove yourself attractive in order to get the same opportunities, in order to get married or in order to be successful. Maybe in your marriage, you feel like you still have to prove yourself to your spouse. And so you're constantly looking for ways to keep the fairy tale alive, constantly looking for ways to make it seem like it's just as romantic as it was when you first started dating. Because if you don't keep the fairy tale alive, if the romance starts to fade a little bit, all they'll be left with is you. And you just don't know if you're really worthy of that person. So in all these phases of life, we put so much pressure on ourselves to be worthy. And we end up constantly walking on eggshells, trying to prove ourselves worthy, scared to fail. Because if we fail, then all that hard work will come crashing down. If we don't get the promotion, or we don't get the approval, or we don't get the compliments, then all that time proving ourselves worthy, working so hard, it was all a waste. You know, sometimes... We're guilty of the same attitude in our relationship with God. You know, we come to church and we hear that we're saved by grace. We read books about grace. We throw the word grace around because that's what we're supposed to talk about as Christians. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. But then deep down inside, there's that little tiny part of us that is still trying to prove ourselves worthy. We're trying to prove ourselves worthy of mercy. Trying to prove ourselves worthy of forgiveness. Trying to prove ourselves worthy of salvation. But then, inevitably, we fail. Somewhere along the line, we slip up. Somewhere along the line, we fall off the wagon. We make a mistake. And then we beat ourselves up over it. We ask if we'll ever be good enough for God. 
We ask if we'll ever be able to prove ourselves worthy. We believe Satan's lie and we believe our own insecurity that God could never love us because of how unworthy we actually are. But then we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, we dust ourselves off and we tell ourselves, okay, this time it's going to be different. This time I'm going to try harder. This time I'm not going to make the mistake. This time I really am going to prove myself worthy for mercy and worthy of forgiveness and worthy of salvation. And we end up putting even more pressure on ourselves than we did before. And the cycle just goes on over and over and over and over. What causes this? Maybe it's our American virtue of independence, that we don't need any help. We don't need any charity. We can take care of ourselves. Maybe it's our prideful human nature. Could be a lot of things. But the answer to this problem, the answer to this trap of constantly trying to prove ourselves worthy is what we're going to talk about this morning. The answer to the problem of our failure The answer to the problem of all the pressure that we put on ourselves to be good enough. And the answer to that is grace. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 30. We're going to end up in John 21 before it's all said and done. But we're starting in Matthew 26. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of our chair Bibles. that will be located on page 776. If you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today and feel free to take that home with you. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 26. So with that, let's pray together and then we'll talk about grace. Father, we are so often guilty of putting pressure on ourselves to be good enough, to prove ourselves, to get it all together, to... Make sure that we're meeting all the prerequisites. Make make sure we're meeting all the requirements. But God, we're saved by grace. We say that a lot. But deep down inside, all of us, at times, we wrestle with that. Because grace isn't always easy to accept. But God, this morning I pray that you'll speak to all of us. That you'll remind us of the grace that we've been shown. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would reveal your grace to them through these passages we read. God, thank you for the fact that we don't have to prove ourselves worthy. That your grace is stronger than our failure. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. So God, give us clarity, give us focus, and help us to really learn from your word. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we're continuing our Come to the Table series this morning, looking at different meals throughout Scripture and these big themes of the story of God and the story of God redeeming his people that so often revolve around a meal setting. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 26. Now, as we talk about grace this morning, I want to focus on one person specifically in the Bible, and that person is Peter. Now, Peter knows a thing or two about trying to prove yourself. Because it seems like he kind of had a little bit of a knack for it. In the story of the Gospels, when Jesus walks on the water, he comes up to the disciples' boat. There's a huge storm. There's wind. There's rain. There's huge waves. Jesus comes to the boat, and they realize it's Jesus. And then it's Peter who speaks up and says, hey, Jesus, can I join you out there? And Jesus says, yeah, Peter, come on out. The water's fine. (laughs) But... Come on out, Peter. And Peter does just that. He gets out of the boat. 
He makes it to Jesus. He's walking on the water and everything's going great. But then he is reminded of the waves. He's reminded of the wind. He's reminded of the storm. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins sinking and Jesus has to reach down and save him. Okay, that's one example. Later, when Jesus predicts his own death, Peter's the one who steps up and says, no, Jesus, there's no way I'm going to let you die. And then Jesus yells, get behind me, Satan, because apparently Peter thinks that he knows better than Jesus does. At the transfiguration, when Peter and James and John are taken up on this mountain and they see this incredible vision of Jesus, they see him transform. They see him shining with this bright light. They see him speaking to Moses and speaking to Elijah. And they're just in awe of what they're seeing. It's Peter who speaks up and says, Lord, can we build some tents here to commemorate this moment? One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Peter gets yelled at by God. But the truth is, we don't know what's going on inside Peter's head during these stories. Maybe Peter just wants to walk on the water because he really thinks it's that amazing. Pure motive. Maybe when Jesus predicts his own death, Peter tries to stop him because he really does just care about Jesus that much. Maybe at the transfiguration, when Peter suggests these tents that he wants to build, maybe it really is just wanting to honor Jesus and honor God. But you put all these things together and it seems as though Peter might be trying to prove something, might be trying to prove himself worthy, might be trying to prove just how faithful he really is, might be trying to prove just how bold he really is. And as if those stories aren't enough, then we get to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So we pick up where we left off last week with that communion sermon. Jesus has done several years of ministry. He's called his followers. He's done miracles. He's had incredible moments of teaching. He's raised people from the dead. He's had all types of confrontations with the religious establishment of his day. And then we got to communion where we talked about how Jesus takes the bread and he takes the juice and he says that my body is going to be broken for you, that my blood is going to be poured out for you, that my death is going to bring about this new covenant of the forgiveness of sins. But then we see something else happen in this passage. We see that Jesus doesn't just say he's going to die. He doesn't just say he's going to be betrayed by Judas, which he would be. He adds that he's going to be abandoned. He adds that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. That these disciples who have followed him so closely for these few years, they're all going to leave him hanging out to dry when he's betrayed and when he's killed. How are the disciples going to react to that? I mean, after all, haven't they proven themselves worthy so far of being faithful followers through thick and thin? Well, look at verse 33 of Matthew 26. Peter, our man Peter, answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Jesus predicts that he will be abandoned and Peter cannot believe what he's hearing. He insists that he would never abandon Jesus, no matter what it costs him. He throws the other disciples completely under the bus and says, hey, Jesus, uh, those clowns might abandon you, but I'm not going to abandon you. And they're probably thinking, hey, Peter, we're right here. Like we can hear what you're saying. But Peter is that confident. Peter is that arrogant that he's willing to follow Jesus no matter what. And then we see Jesus's response. We'll see about that, Peter. In fact, I know for a fact that you're going to abandon me. I can even tell you when it's going to happen. The rooster's going to crow three times. And by the time that third crow comes, you're going to have abandoned me. You're going to have left me. You're going to have completely left me hanging out to dry. It's a pretty cryptic prediction for Peter. And Peter, in his somewhat established arrogance, again, swears that even if he has to die, he will never abandon Jesus. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Well, let's look at John chapter 18 as we continue Peter's story. At this point, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas went through with the betrayal. A group comes to take Jesus. Peter puts up a little bit of a fight by taking out his sword and cutting off a guy's ear. Jesus rebukes him and says, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then in that moment, the disciples and Peter realize, okay, Jesus has no intention of putting up a fight. Jesus has no intention of saving himself. Jesus has no interest in self-preservation. It's almost as if he wants to die. And that's when the disciples flee. That's when the disciples abandon Jesus. That's when that prophecy comes true that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. But at the same time, everyone loves a good train wreck. Everybody loves to watch these kind of things happen from a distance. And so a couple of the disciples follow from a distance to see what's going to happen to Jesus. We look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. All right. So Peter gets snuck in. One of the disciples knows a guy who knows a guy, and they're able to get into this courtyard to kind of observe what is happening to Jesus in this moment. He's been arrested. He's brought to trial. Peter gets snuck in past the servant girl, but then the servant girl stops him and asks him a question. Hey, uh, don't you know Jesus? And Peter says, who? Me? <laughs> you must be thinking of my cousin, um, Frank. He and Jesus are tight. He and Jesus are thick as thieves, but it's not me. I do not know the guy. And the girl says, well, okay, if you insist. 
And Peter's probably thinking, all right, disaster averted. So then he rushes off to get warm next to the charcoal fire. Pick back up in verse 25 of John 18. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. So we saw the one denial to the servant girl. And then we see the two denials here happening around the charcoal fire. And the second that Peter lets out that third denial, the second those words leave Peter's lips, just like clockwork, the rooster crows, just like Jesus said it would. Matthew writes that Peter wept bitterly when this happened. Luke adds that Jesus and Peter even made eye contact in this moment. And you put yourself in Peter's shoes, and there's one word that sums up this moment, and that word is failure. Peter swore that he would die for Jesus. He was willing to fight for Jesus in the garden. But then as soon as he saw that his life really might be on the line if he continues following this guy, Peter chickens out. He denies Jesus three times. He doesn't even have the guts to admit that he knows Jesus to a servant girl. And you think about all that time, all that energy, all that effort that Peter put into proving himself. It's all wasted. All those risks that he took to show just how faithful he really was. Pointless. All those brash claims that he made about himself. All those claims were empty because Jesus has been abandoned. The shepherd has been struck. The sheep have been scattered. And Peter does it even more dramatically than any of the other disciples. So Jesus is killed. The disciples are gone. And then we see something else. The good news of the gospel is that the story doesn't end there. Jesus rises from the dead, just like he said he would. John writes that Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden. He appears to the disciples as a group more than once behind locked doors. And Peter's there. Peter sees him. Peter watches this happen, but the denial isn't addressed. Peter knows what happened. Jesus knows what happened. And yet several different times they spend time together and the denial is the elephant in the room. You have to wonder if Peter feels a little bit awkward knowing what happened and knowing that he now has to look Jesus in the eye again now that he's been raised. The denial isn't addressed until we get to John chapter 21. In John chapter 21 verses 1 through 8 the disciples and Peter, they go fishing and they're not really having a whole lot of luck. It's not really biting that day. The fish just aren't biting that day. And so a random guy on the shore yells out to Peter and yells out to the disciples. Hey, guys, try putting your net on the right hand side of the boat. And sure enough, they cast the net. Tons of fish are caught. A huge haul is brought in. And in that moment, they look out and they realize, OK, this isn't just some random guy. 
This is Jesus that we're talking to. And when Peter realizes that it's Jesus, he jumps out of the boat. He swims a hundred yards to shore just so he can be with Jesus while all the other disciples are stuck dragging the boat in. And then we read verse 9 of John 21. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So the disciples get on shore and then we see the meal where this fits into the come to the table sermon series. We see Jesus serving breakfast to the disciples. But this breakfast doesn't just happen anywhere. Maybe you notice something as we read John 18 and John 21. The breakfast happens around a charcoal fire. Now, you have to wonder in that moment, does Peter have a flashback? Does he remember the flickering light? Does he remember that smell of smoke? Does he remember the heat on his hands? And is he reminded of that charcoal fire back in the courtyard? Is he reminded of his failure? Is he reminded of his denial? Do all those feelings of doubt, all those feelings of shame, all those feelings of anger come roaring back to Peter? And do all those feelings that, wow, Jesus could never possibly forgive me for what I did around that fire in the courtyard. You think those things are running through Peter's mind? I bet they are. You think Jesus is oblivious to this? No, Jesus is not oblivious to this. Look at verse 15 of John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter is asked three questions by Jesus around this charcoal fire. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And with the first time, we see a little bit different Peter than what we've seen so far in the Gospels. The old Peter would have said, Jesus, of course, I love you way more than those guys. That's for sure. But now we see Peter saying, Lord, you know, I love you. We see a much more humble Peter. We see a Peter that has learned a thing or two from failure. And by the time of the third repetition, Peter is grieved that Jesus would ask him this question three times. 
It's pretty easy to understand why Peter would be grieved. The last time he was asked three questions about Jesus around a charcoal fire, that was the worst moment of his life. But this fire is different. That first fire ended in failure and rejection and denial and shame. But this fire, the one on the beach, this fire ends in grace. The fact that Jesus is even willing to eat with Peter in the first place shows affirmation. It shows forgiveness. But then we see one more thing. We see that Jesus commissions Peter. He says, Peter, even though you failed, even though you've messed up, even though you've made countless mistakes, feed my sheep. Peter, die for me. Peter, follow me. Peter didn't deserve that. Peter didn't earn that. Peter couldn't possibly repay that. And yet Jesus gives it to him anyway. Peter is completely unworthy of Jesus' affirmation. He's completely unworthy of Jesus' forgiveness. He's completely unworthy of being commissioned by Jesus to do his work in the world. But Jesus gives it to him anyway. Because that's what makes grace, grace. For the rest of his life, I would imagine that every time Peter sat around a charcoal fire, he probably had a flashback to that courtyard. That's not the kind of thing that you forget. And every time he smelled that smoke, every time he saw that flickering light, every time he felt that heat on his hands, he probably thought of that moment when he denied Jesus. He probably thought of that rooster crowing. But Peter would also be reminded of another charcoal fire. He'd be reminded of that morning on the beach where Jesus affirmed him, where Jesus forgave him, and where Jesus commissioned him. And that thing that used to remind him of failure and shame and doubt now serves as a reminder that God's grace is greater than even his strongest failure. Period. Now, Do you ever have reminders of where you've fallen short? Maybe you go to a certain place or you see a certain person or a certain time of year rolls around. And all those memories of how much you failed, all those memories of those sins, all those memories of those times you fell off the wagon, they come roaring back when you see that reminder. You know, sometimes we as followers of Jesus would be tempted to just avoid those reminders. To just pretend those things never happened, to completely block them out of our memories because those memories send a chill up our spine. But let me challenge you not to completely avoid those reminders of your failure, not to completely avoid those reminders of where you've fallen short and where you've made mistakes. Instead, let those reminders remind you of God's grace, that God's grace is greater than your failure, that God's grace is greater than your mistakes, that God's grace is greater than where you've fallen short. Do you deserve it? No. Could you earn it? No. Can you repay it? No. Are you worthy of it? No. But that's what makes grace, grace. Let them also remind you, those reminders of where you've fallen short, let them also remind you that just like Peter, even though you've messed up, God is not finished with you yet. 
Peter would go on to proclaim the gospel to everyone who would hear. He would lead the church in the book of Acts, especially this guy who at one moment couldn't even be honest about his relationship with Jesus to a servant girl. And legend has it that Peter would be crucified. But get this. Legend also has it that Peter would be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy of dying the same way Jesus did right side up. Peter embraced the fact that he wasn't worthy. He was reminded of the fact that he wasn't worthy. But he also let those things remind him of the grace that God had shown him that morning on the beach. So my challenge to you this morning would be stop trying to prove yourself worthy. Stop trying to be independent. Stop trying to be good enough for God. Because the truth is, you aren't worthy. You aren't good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. But it doesn't change the fact that God shows us grace anyway. That God sent his son to die for us. That's what makes grace grace. The fact that we aren't worthy. The fact that we aren't good enough. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, I would encourage you to rest in the grace of God that is greater than your failures. Let those things that remind you of your failures instead remind you of the grace that you've been shown. Take the grace that you've been shown and share it with those around you who maybe don't know what grace really feels like. And let the grace of God forever change you. We all make mistakes. We all fall short. We all have moments of failure. We all have moments of shame. But God's grace is greater than all of those. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we're more like Peter than we like to admit. We can be brash. We can be arrogant. We can be on this quest to prove ourselves to people, to prove ourselves worthy to whatever standard we hold for ourselves, or even trying to prove ourselves worthy to you, trying to be good enough for you. But God, those attempts are pointless. We will inevitably fail. We will inevitably fall short. And without your grace, we would be completely hopeless. We'd have nowhere to turn, nowhere to go, and we would be stuck in our failure and stuck in our mistakes and stuck in our sin. But your grace is greater than those things. God, at times we are tempted to kind of understand grace with our heads, but still not really live like we really know what grace is all about. I pray that you'll help us to live as people who know your grace. To live as people who fall short, who mess up, but rejoice in the grace that you show us. And we let our failures and we let our mistakes bring glory to you instead of just bringing shame upon us. God, we thank you that your son died on the cross for us. That your grace has been shown in the most incredible, unfathomable way that we could possibly imagine. We can't even fully wrap our minds around your grace shown at the cross. All we can say is thank you. So God, I pray that we'll leave this place this morning 
resting in that grace, letting go of the burden to prove ourselves, and showing that grace to anyone and everyone who will hear it. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Like we talked about, accepting grace can be hard. Because it flies in the face of our pride, it flies in the face of our independence, it flies in the face of our desire to prove ourselves and our desire to show that we don't need anybody's charity. We can take care of ourselves. Grace challenges our notion that God could never save us because of how messed up we are. But God's grace says, yes, he can save us, no matter what we've done. God's grace shows us that even the other people in our lives who we look at and we think, well, God's grace could never save them. Yes, it can save them. And we are in awe of that. So this morning, if you haven't accepted that grace, I pray that you would make that decision. A couple of our elders will be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you. This grace that God shows, it only comes through faith in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. That he is Lord, that he is Savior, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed for you on the cross. So again, if you haven't believed that yet, talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you have. And I pray that no matter where you came in at standing with God this morning, that you would leave resting in the grace that he shows through Christ.